Hi, my name is Mina. Welcome to Kids Talk Church History, a one-of-a-kind podcast where kids investigate the history of the church. Over 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Has he kept his promise? How has Jesus built and preserved his church against all odds? Come with us on a trip through history to find the answer here on Kids Talk Church History. Most Christians have heard of Martin Luther. He was usually remembered as the man who started the Protestant Reformation. Was he really the spark? If so, did he mean to be? What did he write on the paper that he nailed on the Church of Wittenberg? Did he really say, here I stand, I can do no other? And why did he have to go into hiding for so many years? Find out this and more on this episode of Kids Talk Church History. Hi, everybody. I'm Emma. I'm 16 years old, and I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm Sophia. I am 14 years old, and I live in Orlando, Florida. I'm Lucas. I'm 15 years old, and I live in San Diego, California. So I just said that most Christians have heard about Martin Luther, but what have they heard? We took an anonymous mini poll asking kids what they knew about him. What did they reply? Well, some of them didn't really know. They thought we were talking about Martin Luther King Jr. See, we do get that sometimes. I guess Martin Luther King Jr. is more famous today, especially in public schools. We had a four-year-old asking, who's that guy? And a five-year-old said, "Uh, hmm, nothing. I don't know anything. But most of the kids knew at least something. Over half of them said that he nailed the 95 theses on the door of a church. So I think that's what stuck most. Yes, but one said, I don't actually know what the 95 theses were about. I I think that that'll be common among them. So we got a good answer from, they were all good answers, but we got a very uh, especially good answer from a 13-year-old who said he was an integral part of the Protestant Reformation and reformed the Catholic Church because he didn't agree with their theology about buying their way into heaven. These are very good points that we will bring up with our guest later. And a 12-year-old said he was trying to call attention to the heirs of the Catholic Church. I think it was interesting that quite a few people knew that he was a monk and quite a few knew that he was a German monk. And some remembered that he became a monk after he was caught in a thunderstorm. Also, a few people knew that he had to go under disguise and hide in a castle. Here's another good answer. Someone said he almost got struck by lightning. God spared his life and he became a monk. But he kept going to the priest to confess his sins over and over and over. And he felt darkness. There are like little uh, asterisks around it. So it was like jazz hands. And then he went to Wittenberg and started preaching to people that they couldn't save themselves from purgatory by works. He even tried to save himself. He went and climbed those stairs. I think it's referring to the stairs that some people still climb in Rome, thinking that it will help them or their loved ones to spend less time in purgatory. Well, the episode about the lightning reminds me of uh, what happened once in our Sunday school. And uh, this is a little story I have. So in Sunday school, we were learning about Martin Luther and we were learning about the thunderstorm. And the teacher said, all of a sudden, there was a great crash. And as soon as that happened, there was a great crash at our church and the power went out. And it turns out a drunk driver had crashed into the electric pole, taking out the electricity and a huge it sounded like a gunshot at the time. And uh, uh, that's a that's a story I had. Perfect timing, I guess. I mean, in a sadly funny way, but that's a great story. Um, back to what the kids were saying. Some kids said that he was a preacher and one said that he wrote a bunch of books. Two people remembered that he married Katharina Van Bora. And uh, someone even remembered that his dad's name was Hans. 
that's pretty good because even I did not know that. Right, me neither. If we put all these answers together, then we get a whole story. Someone said that he had a big bald spot, but we don't know if that's true. Well, we have some questions as well, so let's see if our expert can help us. We have here Dr. Philip Carey, professor of philosophy at Eastern University and author of many books. He also has recorded a course on Martin Luther with the great courses called Luther, Gospel, Law, and Reformation. Dr. Carey has been with us before for our episode on Augustine of Hippo. Dr. Carey, thank you so much for coming back to our podcast. I was actually going to take a break from recording, but when I heard that you were on this episode, I really wanted to be on it. Oh, well, good. Well, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Yeah. So you heard some of the answers that we got from our mini poll. Most kids remembered that Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to a church door, but I'm not sure if everyone understands why or even what those theses were. A 10-year-old said he nailed the theses of everything the Catholic Church was doing wrong to the church door. That would have taken a huge piece of paper. Can you explain what really happened and what the theses really were about? Yeah. Well, the theses were about um, indulgences. The the ninety five theses really it's 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 a list of propositions for a debate, um, it's called a disputation in the Middle Ages. This is part of university education. Everybody learned how to to debate about particular theses, and that's how you learn to sharpen your mind and your critical thought. Well, Luther wanted to have a public debate outside the university about these indulgences. And uh, it was kind of a rule. If you're going to have a public debate, you have to post the theses that the debate is about, these propositions that you're going to be discussing. So he put them and he tacked them up in the church door. If you have ever seen the church door of a big cathedral in, in, in Europe, it's a great big, huge wooden thing. And he basically was tacking the theses onto um, a bulletin board on the church board, uh, church door, so that people could have uh, public access to this disputation. We don't know if the disputation actually got got uh, held because um, somebody seems to have taken down the, the theses and printed them up and then circulated them. And after that, it became history. Um, but they were about indulgences. The thing to know about indulgences is they were this medieval thing that you would buy, like a piece of paper certifying that somebody's going to get uh, time off from purgatory. Maybe they'll even get a plenary indulgence, which means they get out of purgatory free. Kind of like a get out of jail free card. You can buy that, in, um, but it's a gen get out of purgatory free. Purgatory in the current Catholic understanding is is really a way of cleansing yourself after death so that you can become you know ready for heaven. It's um, in Dante, for instance, purgatory is is full of angels. But in Luther's time, they thought that purgatory was full of devils. It was sort of like temporary hell. Temporary meaning maybe several thousand years of being tortured by demons. Um, so if you had your, your dear old mother uh, who had died and you figured she wasn't perfect, she wasn't a saint, so she's probably in purgatory being tortured, wouldn't it be nice if you could just drop a few coins in a box and buy her way out of purgatory and assure that your dear old mother wasn't being tortured? And if you were a good person, wouldn't you want to do that? And wouldn't you want to pay that? And Every good child will want to get their, their mother or their dad or their grandfather out of purgatory. So pay up, you know, drop those drop those coins in the box. And by the way, um, a whole lot of bishops and other people will, will, will get their cut of the money. In fact, it goes to the Pope. He's building St. Peter's with some of that money, the, the, the big church in the Vatican. There's also a bishop who's getting money. You know, it's, it's a big racket, right? All these terrified people trying to be good people and, and get their 
their mother or father out of purgatory, you know, wouldn't you want to pay a few coins to get your parents to, to stop being tortured? Um, and then the money goes to bishops and popes and things, and it's it's really a big scam. And and that's what Luther was concerned about when he posted the 95 Theses. I have a quick question, follow-up question. Where did this belief in indulgences or this idea of saving your loved ones from purgatory come from? When did it start? Well, the idea of indulgences started with the Crusades, it turns out, because um, you had all these warriors going off to fight and, you know, they might die and, you know, they might die in battle. So so the, the Pope basically said, look, if you, if you go and die in battle and you're killing people, that's that's kind of bad. You don't really want to die with blood on your hands. But here's an indulgence that will say if you die fighting for Christ in the Holy Land, trying to get Jerusalem back from the Muslims, well, then you'll go straight to heaven and you won't have purgatory. So um, that's where it started. Now, the purgatory idea goes back further, and that's the idea that that um, it makes sense to pray for the dead. And if it makes sense to pray for the dead, then they can't be in hell because you can't get out of hell. And it, they're probably not in heaven because, you know, in heaven they don't need our prayers. So if our prayers can help anybody, it must be in purgatory. And the the, the good side of purgatory is that somehow our prayers help the dead. That's That's the nicest part of it. But then when it turns into a, a scam and a money-making operation, then it becomes a form of misery and, and a way of, of fleecing the, the flock, a way of, of getting money out of people who are terrified that that you know their mom or their dad are being tortured by devils as we speak. Right. What a horrible thought. So 95 is a lot of theses. So what yeah. what how how did Luther have 95 separate things to say or were it all was was it really ninety five separate things? Was it just like yeah. bullet points? Was were each of these like a full on you know mini essay about each of these points? Right. How did that work? Yeah, each thesis is really a sentence long. It's really a bullet point. So it's it's ninety five propositions, uh, which could be true or false, and then you debate about whether it's true or false. And Luther himself wasn't committed to all ninety five. Uh, he basically said, well, let's debate about this, and maybe some of this is wrong but that that I'm getting wrong, but but surely we got to figure out how to to reform this problem with indulgences. And some of these theses have got to be right. Um, so it's, it's actually, a, a sh when you put all the theses together, it actually turns out to be a kind of short essay, um, but you divide it, you know, each, each sentence is a separate thesis. So one of the kids in our poll said that Luther reformed the Catholic church because he didn't agree with their theology. I think it's true that he really wanted to reform the church, not start a new religion or a new denomination yeah. or a new church, right? Right. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. He, it's called the Reformation because it's about reforming the church. Um, Luther's absolutely convinced that Christ is faithful and therefore the church has existed ever since Jesus Christ came to earth. The Holy Spirit is faithful, therefore the church has existed. But the church is in a bad way. It's doing some bad things. It's um, it's you know, making money off of people's terrified consciences and their fear of, of hell and purgatory. And it's time to to get rid of some of these abuses like um, uh, indulgences, right? This misuse of of the, of the of the grace of the church, and get back to preaching the gospel, and that's really his aim. But it's it's not like he's starting a new religion for heaven's sakes. He's reading the Bible, which is you know fifteen hundred years old at that time, and and he's trying to reconnect with the same teaching that the church has always been dedicated to. Yeah. 
Yeah, back to that same kid's answer that Luther reformed the church because he didn't agree with their theology. I think he's making a really good point because we have learned that there were many people in the Middle Ages that wanted to reform the church, but yeah. most of them wanted to correct moral problems or organizational problems like who should have final authority. Yeah. Some brought up the importance of having the Bible in the language of the people. But I think Luther went to the core of the matter, the gospel. Can you tell us what the gospel meant for Luther and what was new about the way he taught it? Yeah, I think what Luther was doing that was new was understanding what Christian faith has always done. Right. He's not teaching a new faith. Right? That would be horrible. He, the last thing he wants to do is teach something that that wasn't taught by Paul and, and Augustine, um, the, the great uh, uh, African uh, teacher. But he did say, look, this is what happens when we believe in Christ. When we believe in Christ, we receive Christ himself, and he is our Savior, and we have our Savior. How does that happen? It happens because the gospel gives us Christ. How does the gospel do that? It tells us what God has done. It tells us the story of who Jesus Christ is. So what the gospel doesn't do is give us lots of orders and, and instructions about what to do, because it's about what God does. And that's the crucial difference that Luther insists on between law and gospel. Law is about what we do. Gospel is about what God does. What is it that saves us? What we do or what God does in Christ? Well, Luther's answer is very clear. It's what God does in Christ that saves us. And the reason we are saved by faith alone is because faith takes hold of Christ by believing in the gospel. Right. So the real Savior is not us and not even our faith, but Christ, who's the one in whom we in whom we believe. Yeah. So uh, I think it's uh, very important today because I think a lot of people, uh, they don't really have that distinction between mm -hmm. law and gospel, right? And uh, right. right. And you said that Luther had it very clear cut, right? And so can you uh, just what's going on today? Can you say something about that? Oh, well, yeah, it, it turns out the law and gospel distinction, uh, when you put, just put it in words, it sounds very simple, right? Gospel is what about what God does. Law is about what we do. But it's it's very easy to get messed up about this. And, and Luther says it, it's, it's often very hard to distinguish law and gospel because we keep wanting to do stuff that will save us. We'll even think that, you know, say, if I make the right decision for Christ, that will save me, as if my decision saves me. And Luther doesn't believe that for a second, right? It's Christ alone that saves you. We'll make all kinds of decisions for Christ but they don't save us because we also make decisions against Christ. That's called sin. So if it was up to us, we'd be in real trouble. But thank God, it is up to Jesus Christ. And that's what we should believe, right? Because that's the gospel. So we got to keep turning our attention away from what we do, even what we do by believing, right? Because it's not our believing that saves us, but the one in whom we believe. And we got to keep turning our attention to Christ. Um, and that also means repenting of our sins, right? We, we turn away from sin, we turn to Christ, and we keep on doing this. Um, but the, the crucial thing that we cling to when we turn to Christ is this gospel word, this promise uh, of a Savior that that is part of the story of who Christ is and what God has done for us. And doing that is is the fundamental work of faith that that we have to keep coming back to. So to kind of go back to what we were talking about with uh, Luther not really wanting to break away from the church, but right. to reform the church. Could you talk a little bit about how Luther thought about tradition and how, yeah. you know, 
we a lot of people will talk about like you know sola scriptura means that we don't need the church we just need the bible oh. so did luther believe that what what did he believe about oh, the bible said. in relation to the church well yeah he believed the biblical teaching that the church is the body of christ and if, do you think you can be saved without christ i mean that that doesn't make sense so um of course we're members of the christian tradition what do you think the holy spirit has been doing for the past you know many centuries right um what he didn't believe is that the church had authority to make up new rules and say, if you don't follow these rules, then you're going to hell. Right? So some crude versions of it might be, oh, if you eat meat on Friday, you're going to hell because the church says so. And, and there were times and places where the church talked like that. And Luther's saying, well, look, if it's not in scripture, you don't have to believe it. Right? And that's what the sola scriptura is about. Right? If it's not in scripture, you don't have to believe it. But now, what fool would try to read scripture without the help of the Holy Spirit, who speaks to us through using people like Augustine and Bernard of Clairvaux, who's a medieval monk that Luther loved to read? And, and so we're, we've got a great cloud of witnesses. It begins with the Bible itself. It includes uh, great writers of the Christian tradition. They're gifts of the Holy Spirit to us. Why would we not learn from them? Right? We're reading scripture together with the whole Christian tradition. The other readers of scripture are not infallible, but they're good companions and we can learn a ton from them. And Luther did. One more thing, he actually thought that the church fathers, people like Augustine, were more on the Protestant side than, than on the Catholic side. You know, Just like scripture's on our side, Luther says, Augustine's on our side too, right? Um, yeah, uh, and Protestants have thought that for a long time. So that's that's why we continue to study church history, even when we oh, don't yeah. necessarily agree theologically with everything. Right, right. I mean, we have to be grownups and realize, okay, our fathers in the faith include, you know, 2,000 years of, of Christian teachers, and they didn't get everything right, for heaven's sakes. Um, but they but they have a lot to teach us. This is all reminding me of something I read about another reformer, um, Ulrich Zwingli, who started the Reformation before Luther. But from what I understand, Luther was the first to point out that our salvation is not only by grace alone, but through faith alone. Is that right? Um, I would say that the, the grace alone part is also something that you really only get clear in Luther. Um, Swingley wanted to reform the church and fix a lot of the things that were going wrong, like indulgences. But he really wasn't very clear on the key issues of salvation, as far as I'm, as far as I can tell. Um, it was really Luther who got us thinking both about salvation by faith alone, because faith alone takes hold of Christ, and by grace alone, which is to say, um, we don't try to earn our salvation. Right? What grace alone excludes is merit. What faith alone excludes is works. So we don't try to work in order to earn our salvation. And Luther was the first guy who said that really, really clearly. All right. So I have a very important question, right? So someone said that Luther had a big bald spot on his head. Uh, did he have that? I don't really know. Um, uh, you know, there's, there's a couple of portraits of Luther painted during his lifetime, but he usually... Um, he usually had a cap on his his doctoral cap as, as a, a PhD. Um, so, you know, he probably got bald by the time he died. He was in his 60s. You know, people people do that. But, yeah, I don't really know. All right. And then 
do you know uh, what he was studying before he became a monk? Well, yes. I mean, he was a law student for about a, well, not quite a year, I think. And um, that's that's when he had that thunderstorm experience. He was uh, coming back uh, after a break. He was walking back to law school. It was a few miles away. And he was out in, in a field and there was a thunderstorm. And he was terrified because um, thunder can not only, you know, lightning can not only kill you, but if you're in a state of mortal sin, as the Catholic Church calls it, then if you die in sudden death, you'll go straight to hell. Right? There were lots of prayers in those days against uh, the, the, the prospect of sudden death. Because if you had sudden death without the chance to confess your sins, you know, you know, the, the, the lightning hits you and then the next moment you begin an eternity of torture. Right. This is absolutely terrifying. So, so what Luther did uh, as a good medieval uh, Christian at the time is he prayed for some help from heaven. Now, as a Protestant, he would have prayed to Jesus Christ. Right? But as a Catholic of the Middle Ages, he prayed to St. Anne, kind of patron saints up in heaven, who has it in good with God. That's what patron saints were for is, is you know, you got a friend in high places who can put in a good word for you. And so he said, St. Anne, help me. I'll become a monk, which meant, okay, put in a good word for me with God so that I don't die and go straight to hell. And then I'll spend the rest of my life dedicating my life to the service of God rather than making money as a lawyer. And that way I'll pay you off for saving me at this, this moment where I'm helpless and I might die the next moment. Even then, after that, he was still kind of in the Catholic view of um, salvation by following a law or by paying off some sort of debt to God. Would you say? Yeah. Oh, yes. He's paying off a debt to God. He's paying off this this um, this vow. And um, yeah, you, 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 there's all sorts of things you have to do to get in good with God. And that's that. That's what he got rid of when he really got serious about the gospel. But that didn't happen for another, well, 10 years after that uh, thunderstorm experience. All right. So uh, I've read that after the 95 Theses, the Pope asked his secretary to send a message to Luther. And the secretary said that a Pope could not be judged, even if he led people by crowds into the possession of hell. And Luther told a friend, I think everyone in Rome has gone crazy. So, uh, yeah, I think that sounds about right. How else did uh, the Pope and the Emperor respond to this? Okay, right. So, so here we are. Uh, we're in northern Germany in uh, the town of Wittenberg, which is where Luther is a. He's actually an Old Testament professor as well as a monk, as well as preaching in the the town church, uh, and he's he's trying to, to reform this business of indulgences. The the ninety five theses get reprinted and reprinted and reprinted and is spreading virally all over Germany, and a copy gets down to Italy to the Pope. And the Pope says, what's this drunken German doing? Right? That, that's, that's a quote that some people attribute to the Pope, these drunken Germans. And so he's got an Italian friend who's um, in what's called the Curia. There's a whole bunch of people gathered around the Pope doing some of his work for him. They're kind of church bureaucrats. And the Pope says to this man, Priorius, okay, write a refutation of this drunken German. Um, and so within a few weeks, um, a couple of months or so after the 95 Theses, um, Luther gets this um, refutation, you know, a, a, kind of an essay from, from Italy saying the Pope can't possibly be wrong. The Pope approved of these uh, indulgences, so you have no right to question them. If you do, you're a heretic and you're going to hell. Right. right. Trying to get rid of this guy quick. Right. Um, which was actually 
uh, um, they didn't know how stupid this was. Um, they thought that they could just sort of suppress this kind of nonsense, right? We're not going to let you challenge the Pope, right? Which, by the way, you can challenge the Pope. The Pope isn't always infallible. Not everything the Pope does is supposed to be infallible, according to the Catholic Church. So this was a power play that the Pope didn't really have a right to, even under canon law of the Catholic Church at the time. But, uh, well, in fact, that's why, why Luther said this is crazy. Um, this guy is saying it doesn't matter what the Pope does. If the Pope does something that's going to send you know, thousands and thousands of people to hell, it's still okay and you can't question it. And, and Luther's saying this is nuts. And the Pope underestimated Luther, they all underestimated Luther in the particular way that they didn't notice that he could write. Boy, could Luther write. He wrote literally hundreds of books, most of them fairly small, but he just he just could write and he could write well, he could write convincingly. And the printing press had been invented recently. Right. So when Luther wrote, all of a sudden, there are people all over Europe reading what Luther wrote. This is a man who's very hard to suppress. You try to shut him up and he's not good at shutting up. Right. And he'll keep writing for you. So you know, fast forward a couple of years and um, down in Italy, they've decided Luther's a heretic. He should be arrested, brought down to Italy. We can burn him as a heretic. We can burn him at the stake. Um, but Luther's up in Germany, right? The Pope has no authority up in Germany. The Pope has to ask the emperor. The emperor is the holy Roman emperor, Charles V at the time. Um, and the, the holy Roman emperor is... He's amazing. He's he's a Habsburg, and and the Habsburg now control uh, Belgium, Spain, some of Italy, most of Germany. You know, I mean, it's this huge, sprawling area throughout Europe. And um, what what Charles V has to do as emperor is he 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 establishes kind of it's it's like Congress were is as if Congress were to meet on a, on a rotating schedule around like you know fifteen different cities in the United States. When they meet, it's called a diet, it's spelled like diet, right? So it's a diet, it's like a parliament or a congress where the emperor meets and then tries to solve problems, right? So the problem in 1521 at the Diet of Worms, which is German, but if you spell it out in English, it looks like a diet of worms, right? But it's Diet of Worms, right? Stay it in German and it's, it's okay. Um, so, so the emperor is trying to sort this stuff out with Luther. He's read some of Luther's books because everybody's read some of Luther's books. Um, and um, Luther speaks up in front of the emperor, which terrifies him. Right, I mean, This is the most powerful man in the world. Um, and eventually the emperor listens to Luther and listens to the theologian from the pope and says, you know what, Mr. Luther, you are a heretic. You are now officially banned from the emperor. Uh, but um, you were talking about how he went into hiding. The complication is when Luther came to Worms, he was under a safe conduct from the emperor, which meant basically he had he had immunity. Right. The emperor wasn't going to arrest him there at Worms because he, he it's actually a piece of paper that says we're not going to arrest you. You're safe. You can come and talk to the emperor and, and you know, no one's going to, going to arrest you and send you down to Rome to be burned as a heretic. So Luther takes his safe conduct and he gets out of there. Um, but after he gets out of there, um, he's no longer, you know, once he's out, out of the territory, he's no longer safe. And the emperor's agents, essentially the imperial police, are going to catch him and take him down to Rome to get burned as a heretic. 
So that's when he's uh, secretly kidnapped by his friends. Luther himself doesn't even know this is going to happen. So, so the his his friends, who are his sponsors, basically, including some of the princes up in Germany, say, "Okay, we will." kidnap him it'll seem like you know some highway robber has has done away with him and we'll put him up in a castle where nobody knows where he is you know an abandoned castle at the top of a hill nobody knew he was there except a half dozen people and and that's where they kept him for about six months or so um because you know the emperor's police were out to get him and and arrest him and haul him to be burned as a heretic that's a it's pretty good exposition on Luther's life. I'd yeah. say yeah. it's one of the most dramatic moments in his story. Yeah, yeah, he's got some dramatic moments. Yeah. So we also have a question from a listener that isn't specifically related to Luther, but uh, it'll fit well. This is a message we received from his mother. Thanks for your good work on the podcast. It's so helpful for kids to hear kids asking thoughtful questions courteously and to learn alongside you all. We just enjoyed your most recent episode in preparation for Reformation Day tomorrow. My son Jude, age seven but almost eight, has a question. Did people in the Middle Ages ever believe the Pope had magical powers? And... Um, yeah, not really. Um, uh, I mean, it was never anything like official Catholic teaching or anything. Now, um, um, there, in fact, even the notion that the Pope was infallible was not really carefully worked out until the um, uh, 19th century. Uh, what people did believe, um, and maybe this is what um, your your friend was talking about, um, is that um, when a priest says "hoc est corpus meum," which is Latin for "this is my body," um, that turned the bread and wine into the body and blood of Christ. And it still looked like bread and wine, but it's the body and blood of Christ, right? So it tastes like bread and wine, but it's the body and blood of Christ and so on. Um, and Luther looked at that and said, you know, that's an unnecessary miracle. We don't really need to get rid of the body. and uh, We don't need to get, get rid of the bread and wine. Luther actually thought that the, the body and blood of Christ was there called real presence. But why get rid of the bread and wine? The bread and wine is still there. Well, so this miracle that happens because of hoc est corpus meum sounds a bit like hocus pocus. And that's where the phrase hocus pocus actually came from. It, it was a parody of this um, thing that was said in Latin when a, a priest of the Roman Catholic Church was uh, was uh, performing the Eucharist. Uh, so a lot of Protestants say that that sounds like hocus pocus to me, and they call it magic. Well, thank you, Dr. Carey. This was an amazing episode. It was so fun. Um, since you've been on our podcast before, we're not going to ask you the same questions, but could you tell us what you like to do in your free time? And if you could meet anyone from the time of the Reformation, who would it be? Okay. Well, what I do in my free time right now is um, <laughs> I read and study. Um, I read and study to teach my classes, but I also read and study because I'm I'm writing some books, including one about the gospel. And um, I love thinking about that and I love reading about it. So when I have a spare time, spare minute, I, I'm reading uh, and I'm studying scripture a lot, too, uh, which I don't get enough. I don't get to do that enough because I'm a philosophy professor. I'm supposed to be studying Plato instead of scripture, but I cheat and study scripture. Uh, who would I like to meet from the Reformation era? Um, yeah, certainly Martin Luther. Um, although I will say this, um, Luther had a best friend named Philip Melanchthon, who was a different kind of person than Luther. Luther was this gigantic personality. 
And I think I would probably like Melanchthon better because I don't like big personalities. Um, Melanchthon was a scholar. He was a modest man. Uh, he was not loud. Luther, you have to imagine Luther was a really loud person. You know, he walks into the room. Everybody knows that there's Martin Luther. I don't like people like that very much, although, you know, he's fascinating and important. And I, he's probably the most important person to talk to at the time. But I think I would have enjoyed um, going to lunch with Philip Melanchthon much better. Well, Dr. Carey, we are so, so thankful that you decided to spend this time with us. And listeners, if you visit our website, kidstalkchurchhistory.org, you'll find a link where you can enter a drawing for a free book. This time we're giving away Simon and Akar's book, Martin Luther. How timely for this episode. It's almost like we planned it that way, where you can find a lot more about this great reformer. While you're on our website, check out our past episodes, special news, recommended readings, and more. In partnership with the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, and on behalf of my co-hosts, Sophia and Lucas, I am Emma. Thank you for listening to Kids Talk Church History. 